What's up, everybody? Yavitsa Djurjevic here. I got Joel DeSantis on today and conversation was awesome. We talked a lot about addiction and personal development. We talked a lot about his profession and, and dealing in the world of addiction and rehab and really some of the finer details of what people are struggling with. And then also his own personal story of self-development and identifying himself and get out of a rut was quite negative in his life and turned into something incredibly positive, as well as just some of the life lessons that he learned along the way from failure and from success. And it was a good conversation overall, really enjoyed it. I think you guys will enjoy it as well. And uh, without further ado, here you go. Joel DeSantis, what's going on, man? Oh, just enjoying a lovely day of this beautiful view you got here of Nashville. I do have a, for, for folks who don't know, uh, we're recording in my office and it is a really, really cool view. Actually, it's it's pretty dark outside right now, so you can just see the lights of the buildings. But I'm pretty sure they're going to put up a high rise right outside where this parking lot is. So I think we'll lose this view, but I'll enjoy yeah. it while we can. So Joe has a theory that cranes are taking over the world and there's all these cranes looming ahead I, looking at us. That is my crab <laughs> crab people theory. Have you ever seen a crane being built? No. No. Have you ever seen a like Anybody go in and in or out of a crane? No, yet they exist and they grow somehow. I'm telling you. I've never met a crane operator. Yep, they are feeding off of us. All right, that's my crazy crackpot theory. <laughs> anyway, so I wanted to have you on because you're an interesting guy and you got an interesting story. And I think you just uh, uh, you, you you do a lot of thinking, which makes me happy because I like talking to folks who think. But uh, you also have a very interesting uh, profession. So so explain to folks what you do for a living. So I work in the uh, addiction industry, um, kind of on the front lines because I work in the sales slash consulting department. So people call in, um, they're usually addicted to drugs or their family members addicted to drugs or alcohol or some other addictions like sex and video games. But those are not really what we deal with. Um, so yeah, doing it for five years, I've talked to 10,000 or more people that yeah. are actively or addicted to drugs or, or alcohol and just uh, basically you know, killing themselves to be happy, which is really counterintuitive. And, and now it's becoming um, much more, five years ago, it wasn't as well known, but now that there's record overdoses and record problems and costs associated with those problems, it's becoming a much more, um, it's becoming a problem our society is a lot more aware of before we tended to, to either ostracize people or, or downplay it or, or say that's not, uh, it's not something that happens in my backyard. But now that it's something that's affecting normal quote-unquote people people have jobs or or the kids of people with jobs and you know successful families you know like our um like our mayor her son overdosed on an opiates last year yeah i, mean, that, yeah, I remember that yeah you know, when people that are otherwise should be happy and have everything are the ones going out and doing uh taboo substances that's really when uh the you know that's when people are starting to realize it so anyway yeah, I work for one of the largest providers of uh, substance abuse treatment. So I, I've talked to lots of people uh, in all different stages of their lives, work with a lot of people that are either in recovery or fortunately I've had some coworkers that were in recovery and then they weren't and we didn't know it. And then they, they've died. Like I had a friend that died about a month ago, heroin overdose wow. that worked with me. He, didn't, he never would have expected it. You know, he was worked in the alumni department, was very active. Everybody loved him. Super charming, nice guy. And next thing you know, Again, an email thought, oh, maybe he resigned. They had his name in the email header and no, he died of a heroin overdose. Wow. So you, you've interacted with thousands of people over the last five years. 
that's obviously a very tough thing for anybody to get to the point where they're actually reaching out to somebody to get help, whether it's them or a family member or a friend or because you guys are, are really the first line of communications. Like I saw on a billboard or a commercial or a doctor or whatever it may be yeah. calling, you know, XYZ number and Joel picks up. You know, you mentioned they're killing themselves to feel happiness, which is counterintuitive, as you mentioned. But what are the themes that you're noticing when you're talking to those people? What, And especially over the last five years, has there been an increase, decrease? As someone who doesn't know much about that business, just talk to me about that. The, the opiates and just the, what we're noticing is a lot more opiate addiction. And it's not – when I first started, it would be a lot of painkillers, pills that you get from the doctor, people eating them. Yeah. Taking them orally, which is not as – it's not as strong when somebody eats a, eats a painkiller yeah. or eats a pill. It takes longer to kick in, but they're getting it from their doctor. And so over the past few years, there's been a lot of legislation and a lot of crackdowns on um, unscrupulous doctors. And so people have switched from being addicted to pharmaceutical drugs to um, powder street drugs. And then, so the heroines and, yeah. the, and the cocaines of the world. Yeah, like heroin is a big one. Okay. Um, and then the heroin has started to get cut with fentanyl. Uh, people buy it from China, and it's about what's fentanyl. So you have opioids. Op- they're opioids and opiates. They come from the opium poppy. Mm-hmm. And morphine was created in the 1850s. Oh, people have used opium for hundred thousands of years. They smoked it. It's a yeah black tar. So. Oh, more, yeah, morphine than heroin came out as a as a cure for morphine addiction in the about a hundred years ago. Wait, what? Yeah, heroin heroin was designed as a cure for opiate or morphine addiction. Okay, so, interesting. Heroin's about three times stronger than morphine, and then fentanyl's about I think it's a hundred times stronger than heroin. So you're talking about three hundred times stronger than morphine. Interesting. So it's in micrograms, which is a thousandth of a gram, and. It's designed to put as a as a patch in your skin or um, nasal spray for people with cancer. Even though the company that sells that's being sued right now, so so it's more of a, a pain tolerance type thing yeah. for people who go on, who are going through really really rough treatments. Yeah, it's designed for people that have like stage four cancer and are dying, or somebody that broke their back and has rods in it and can barely move. People that yeah. can't function without something to help with the pain. So yeah, now that it's being manufactured in China and maybe Mexico, some other countries may manufacture it. And, and what was happening is, is there's something called the dark web. That's the internet, like the illegal version of the internet. You could go on there. There was something called Silk Road. And now there's probably You can others. order a murder. You can buy, yeah, you can, yeah, you can buy all kinds of crap. It's where Bitcoin yeah. originally came from. It's people use Bitcoin to buy crap on the, on the dark web. On yeah. The Silk Road. Yeah. I had a coworker years ago. He actually got arrested. Oh, he was, okay. uh, he must've, if you translate how much he probably spent in Bitcoin five years ago, he probably spent millions of dollars on drugs. Wow. If you think about it, because yeah. he's probably spent you know, when it was hundred dollars a coin or something. So yeah, you're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of fentanyl um, addiction and people overdosing on either fentanyl or um, illegal illegal versions of the drugs. So it's starting to when I, I'm 33 and so I'm a little bit there's a little bit of a generational gap between say me and a 23 year old. Like yeah. when I was in college, people weren't doing heroin. Yeah. Um, they might've been abusing stimulants, alcohol, marijuana, Some, ecstasy. That yeah. was, that was, I mean, Molly was pretty hot when I was in college. Yeah. Molly painkillers. You know, I remember people doing painkillers. They were cheap, like five, $10 a pill. Now the yeah. same pills be like 70, $80. Hmm. So uh, yeah, it's starting to trickle down to younger people and wealthier communities. Um, New Jersey is where a lot of the opiate 
started uh, in Baltimore, I think because that's where they, they import them, those harbors. It comes from the Middle East. And part of it maybe I'm, I'm not like an expert on international affairs, but a lot of it was after the war in Afghanistan, their opium production started going up for some reason. So, yeah. It's a way to make money. Yeah. <laughs> that's why. Yeah. yeah. If a farmer can sell apples or opium, it's going to go with the opium. It's, yeah. a, it's a little more uh, profitable. Well, and, and from what I understand, opium is very um, – it, it can just grow in really rough terrain. Yeah. And it's it's very resilient. Mm-hmm. Whereas, for example, growing tomatoes, you, you really need – yeah, an ideal circumstance to grow grow tomatoes. So it's a lot of work. Well, I think that's interesting what you said about it going into into wealthier communities. You know, a lot of the conversation where you and I talked about having before we started recording is you know personal development and really uh, growing as an individual. And you know, a little bit of your background. So you you know you grew up in the north in New York. Yeah, Syracuse, Liverpool, New York. Okay, so and you mentioned that was a, a wealthier part of the state of New York. Yeah, Liverpool was really nice. Um, it was at the time, I think it was one of the best school districts in New York, which has some of the best school districts in the country. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a great, great district. And then the economy really started to fail in Syracuse. The Fisher body plant closed, which yeah. was the factor that made bodies for the Cadillac and different Chevy uh, models, General Motors models. So the, that city kind of started to fall apart and it really hasn't recovered since then. Um, like all those Rust Belt cities? Yeah. Make them a real Rust Belt. The, and then a lot of the taxes and other things that hit people caused them to, to move out of there because if you don't have a job and you're getting higher taxes, it made it difficult for people to afford to live there. So, um, yeah, the city kind of fell apart and a lot of families moved out thousands and thousands of families. And so you had options to go places. You could go to Michigan, you could go to Texas, you could go to Kansas or Tennessee. So my family moved to Tennessee because of the Saturn plant. Yeah. There's Saturn. It's, uh, which doesn't exist anymore, but back in the day, Saturn was made in Tennessee. A different kind of company, a different kind of car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dent-free Saturn. Yeah. So they moved down to Spring Hill. Um, Thriving metropolis. Yeah, 2,500 <laughs> people. There's a really interesting video on YouTube. I'd never seen it until last year. It was uh, putting the spring in Spring Hill, and it was a promotional video the city made for Spring Hill to sell the idea to Saturn. Yeah. Um, and so... So this is back in like the 80s? Yeah, I think 88, 87. Wow, okay. Late 80s. Um, so, yeah, it, that city's now about 40,000 people, 50,000 people. I think it's the fastest growing city in the state. I just read an article about it today. Well, because um, it's basically a, an extension or a suburb of Nashville now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for people that aren't from Nashville, you can drive from where we're at now in downtown all the way to Thompson Station and you know, not, not knocking or anything, but you won't see a trailer park. You won't see like a dodgy, shady house or Everything's just beautiful. It's all these nice, gorgeous middle-class neighborhoods or apartments or condos. You have one of the wealthiest counties in the in the country in Williamson yeah. County. Yeah, more uh, luxury County. car dealerships per capita than any other county in the country. I didn't know that. Yeah, fun fact. Yeah, see a lot of Teslas and Porsches around. Very much um, so. A lot of a lot of healthcare. Uh, I mean, basically, healthcare is based out of Nashville. If you mm-hmm. really look at it with HCA and a couple other companies, so a lot of money. Vanderbilt um, now. Just a few blocks from here, I think uh, Amazon's coming. So. Amazon, Nissan, Firestone, or Bridgestone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but you get down to Spring Hill back in the 90s. Yeah, it was backwards. It was like moving from the 1993 to 1975. Um, it was a more rural area. Yeah. Just. Just less developed than a than a than a city in upstate New York. Yeah, with less develops. A lot of the powers that be in Columbia, that area, they really fought against progress. Mm-hmm. Um, they really didn't. A lot of people didn't like Northerners there, 
So we moved You're a carpet bagger. Yeah, carpet baggers. Yeah, yeah. In the, the literal sense, Northerners, it came down to make money. resources. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, we just didn't have a carpet that you whipped out and said, here, I'm selling you my trinkets. No, I guess we were car baggers. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> you know, we, we, we talked about you going to high school and we talked about you, you know, going to college. So let's fast forward a little bit. So you're growing up now in, in Spring Hill, Tennessee. You, you mentioned you had a good family, yeah. good upbringing. Um, An older brother, mom, dad, you know, pretty normal middle class blue collar family. Obviously, Virginia, obviously there are adjustments that you have to make moving to the middle of the South and in the 90s yeah. um, in, in a small town such as Spring Hill. But, you know, you weren't moving into, you know, a border city no. where cartels were shooting at each other. That it, nah. Yeah, it was just it was just more rural. Yeah, it was normal. It was like a normal I guess you could call it a normal city. The weather yeah. was nicer. They're just a lot more, um, it was a lot more working class, you'd say, like in uh, where we moved specifically. We moved to the more of the rural part of the county. It's called Murray County, mm-hmm. Murray County. So uh, it was more rural, a lot more, just the majority of people worked for one company, General Motors. Yeah. So it was kind of very homogenous in that way. A lot of people, had similar goals, you know, go to community college, just get a blue collar job, yeah. have kids and that's fine. You still yeah. see a lot of those people on Facebook. I grew up with that yeah. live down there and they're really happy. And fortunately that's just a, a good area to be. You know, if you live there, people are moving there in droves now. So that yeah. ain't a bad place to be 20 years, 25 years later. It's a really Especially nice if you owned a house that you bought in the nineties and are selling now for five times the price. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a pretty sweet deal. So good. Were you a good, good kid in high school? I was a good kid. I, I talked. I mean, you probably did stupid crap like everybody else, but overall. Yeah. I could think of a couple. Uh, I was maybe a little too outspoken, a little smart for my own good. You know, my dad's Italian and he kind of tends to say what's on his mind for better or worse. And no way. I remember uh, one funny story. I had a teacher named Mrs. Crone and I wrote a, a poem about an old crone. Cause oh, crone, gosh. Crone's an old woman. Yeah. <laughs> for those of you that read Game of Thrones, you'll know she's one of the seven gods. She'll always show you the way. So, uh, yeah, just little things like that. It was a tough environment to harness your creativity. There weren't a lot of extracurricular activities there. And yeah, um, going into high school, like a lot of marijuana, a lot of drinking. So I was completely a very square, if you will, kid. And I got my driver's license and started getting more involved in the the party party yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, Which in Murray County probably resulted in, you know, going into a field with a bunch of trucks and putting out a tailgate and having a keg. That's exactly what it was. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I ran into about. the fields twice after graduation. Two grad, two graduation parties, and I think a week I had to run for the police into the, into a field. Yeah, uh, sounds about right. That's <laughs> a very Tennessee thing to do. Yeah, um, and I even grew up in Memphis, and you still had that going on in the outskirts. So. Yeah. So Spring Hill's been hit hard from what I've heard too by the whole heroin and opioids from what I know. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Well, and it's rural America that really gets hit in a lot of ways because. Um, it, it's just where all a lot of that stuff goes, mm-hmm. and and there's a lot of times less resources to help people in yeah. the early stages of addiction or whatever it may be to where it just progresses quicker. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tough also because you don't have mentors, a lot of mentors. It's tough when you don't have mentorship, um, and you don't have a lot of healthy ways to express yourself or to um, to build to do something that's an achievement. There. are well, so people start to develop shortcuts, ways to feel good and hmm. ways to escape their pain instead of learning to turn their pain into something that can be you know, an expression of them. It's so, interesting. Would you, I mean, when you, when you talk to folks who call in when you're at work and you're consulting them and trying to help them find 
help. Would you say that's that's pretty much a common theme of those shortcuts? I mean, I'm yeah. assuming they tell you their story. Like, yeah, I, I can just imagine. Luckily, luckily, I don't. I've never been addicted to a substance, but. Yeah. No, my personality. I'd probably call somebody up and be like, "Let me tell you about the day I was born." Yeah. Until now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'll ask them what's going on. You know, what happened? Yeah. And and that's a lot of the a lot of times that's what it is. Is they start out where it's enjoyable. You know, maybe in a way to get relaxed after work or to have fun with friends because we all have things that we struggle with. But if we don't learn to face those fears and anxieties, it's much easier to do something that allow you to feel pleasurable without having to go through that, that pain. Yeah. You know, um, let's get, get the dopamine hit without the, without yeah. the, the, the work on the front end. Mm -hmm. So you could go, um, go to the gym every day for an hour a day and, and work out and lose weight, get healthy or do a stimulant and feel great right now. And then and, feel like crap afterwards and yeah. have to do it over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then you start, you, as Mark Manson calls it, the um, Mark Manson wrote the book called The Cellular of Not Giving a Fuck, a counterintuitive guide to the good life. And he talks about the feedback loop from hell where, man, I'm really stupid. I don't. Why did I do that? I messed up. Like, Oh, wow. I'm really stupid for telling myself I'm stupid that I messed up. And then it's just you keep it's like an echo of negative self-talk that keeps going on over and over and over again. Yeah. And then that creates shame and through shame creates isolation and through isolation. It creates another feedback loop start escalating down that path. So it may be, oh, I, I feel bad. I got drunk at my brother's wedding or missed Christmas. I can either go talk to them and have this difficult conversation or I can go and drink and forget about it and act like it never happened. Problem is everybody else knows it happened because they were sober and they saw you do it. Yeah. <laughs> so We live in community whether yeah. we like to admit it or not. Yeah. It's well, and it's interesting what you said about shame. I mean, I know one of the toughest parts about y'all's job is to you've got to get the people – once they reach out to you, that's a great first step, but you need them to take action to actually go into a facility. Yeah. That's really your job is because unless you help them most of the time, they're not going to do it. Right. It, because it's such a ma massive step. How often do you feel shame is the biggest barrier to them taking, getting the treatment? Um, I'd say it's one of the biggest ones because it can be disguised in different forms. I can't miss work or I got to be at your home at Christmas or everybody needs me, even though your family's totally tired of you from yeah. being drunk. So I think that's a large barrier. Um, people don't want to miss work. They might, let's say somebody has a great job. Everything looks rosy on the outside, but inside the home, it's, it's hell. Yeah. They don't want to break that facade because the community will shame them. Once their secrets are out in the open, then everybody's going to see that and they're going to look at them in a different light. Kind of like a good example is Tiger Woods. Everybody knows what Tiger Woods did. He was addicted to drugs, got in a car wreck. His wife beat his Escalade with a... Um, a golf club. And now no matter what Tiger Woods has done, people can look at him and they'll still remember that, that event. And then yeah. that's a very extreme, ex event. extreme example of, of what could happen. And everybody's in their mind, Tiger Woods. Interesting. Well, let's, okay. let's fast forward a little bit. So we go to college. So your first year of college didn't go as, as planned. What, no. uh, what, what happened? So at the university of Tennessee, you could live in different halls. There was Reese hall. There was North Carrick where the, the uh, college, you had North Carrick, South Carrick, yeah. guys, girls. You had Reese. You had Humes. They tore down most of those, by the way. Yeah. Fun fact. Oh, God. So UT's campus is gorgeous. There's probably been a billion dollars worth of uh, Yeah, the, the master plan is incredible. Sorry, mm -hmm. this is us going off on a tangent. But, yeah, you. I mean, yeah. even even Sophie's Hall doesn't exist anymore. Really? The old uh, piece of crap dorm that was haunted and had the cafeteria yeah. in the bottom next to Clement. Yeah. It's like this massive, beautiful, like, 
multi-million dollar structure now. Anyway, these lucky Gen Zers who yeah. get to go there. Yeah. So yeah, Reese was just a Reese. Fifth floor Reese is where you went and got your drugs. I think I was on the fifth floor. Uh, I'm not surprised. We must have smoked four or five packs of cigarettes a day in our dorm. <laughs> At that time, there were still smoking rooms in the dorm in the library. Really? Yeah, yeah. On the I think fifth floor, there were smoking rooms in the library. You could smoke well, okay, inside then. the library. It's funny. I, like I came in like the very end of the kind of like the very beginning of the millennial thing. We saw a lot of there's still smoking sections in all of the restaurants, even though it flowed right into the room next door. Yeah. So we were a little less healthy generation than now. But yeah. Um, yeah so there's a lot of partying. I moved in with a, a roommate who was a popular kid in high school. I grew up with him. I still know him and I'm still friends with him, but there was a lot of drug culture on campus. And obviously things are what you make it. You know, that was my experience there. There are a lot of people that didn't have that experience. It's just, I happened to. There's 30,000 kids at the university. You can find whatever group you want. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of learned to, because I wasn't that, I didn't have many friends. I mean, I, I had associates, but once I got my car in high school and then I got a fake ID from my brother and, you know, I, I learned that was a way of acceptance. That was a way of fun. Yeah. And you're 16 years old. Your brain's not really fully developed. Yeah, your prefrontal cortex doesn't develop yeah. until you're like 25. Yeah. You shouldn't be allowed to make any decisions until then. No. <laughs> no. Nothing nothing serious. No. Anyway, so, so, so yeah, moved drug in, culture, moved in. Had a, had a dorm mate. I think this may be a record. He got two 0.0 GPAs two semesters in a row. Wow, that is impressive. He didn't get kicked out? No, his grandfather was friends with the president who ended oh. up getting fired, I think, for corruption. Um, oh, yeah, I remember him. Yeah, anyway. Joe Johnson or something like something that. Something like that, or, yeah. yeah. Maybe the, before that. Sorry, Joe, if, <laughs> if it's not you, I'm not meaning to slander <laughs> you. Um, so, yeah, just some crazy, a lot of crazy stories that year. Uh, there was, yeah, he got strung out on coke. With, he's in prison now. I, I've looked him up recently, Doug. So just really surrounded myself with not the right people, to, to say the least. Um, this is an embarrassing story, but I retook a class for the second semester of college because I forgot I retook it the first one. <laughs> you just completely you just didn't even know it was on your schedule you're like eh, whatever I'll, I'll i'll figure it out when i when i get the f yeah no yeah we had like uh, these blinds on our dorm room these dark uh, these blackout shades and i had like two three foot long black lights and basically the, the dorm was just glowing the entire time you go in there and there were little glowing stars on the ceiling and made them as a as a constellation it was just yeah it was a it was a it was very much a drug-induced experience. Yeah. I, yeah. I had never been really out of my shell or out of orbit of my parents. So yeah. then I moved into my own dorm room with, or my own uh, apartment after that year. It was tough. I had a breakdown. I had to be hospitalized 15 years ago. It was just tough. It was a breakdown. That's all we'll say about that. I just yeah. flipped out. And I, I wanted to do better. And I wanted to get out. It's just I didn't know how. I didn't ever have any good mentors around me or anybody that – I was surrounded by people that were constantly wanting to take shortcuts and wanting to be quote unquote cool. You know, they, yeah. they wanted to look good, wanted to be cool. And some of them are still living like that. It, it's really. Do you mind if I throw in a Milanism real quick? Yeah. Dad yeah. always said, uh, always says to this day, don't be cool for a day or two, figure out a way to be cool for life. Cause there's nothing worse than being a loser 10 years later. Yeah. And I was like, man, even as a kid that, that stood out to me. So I know exactly what you're talking about. When you think yeah. back at 18, you're like, yeah, these guys, these folks are are quote unquote cool. Yeah, they've got their cool card, but man, I don't want to. I don't want to be cool when I'm 18. I want to be cool when I'm every, whatever age I am. Yeah, <laughs> all the time. So, so what what kind of caused the transition to you 
obviously freshman year doesn't go the way you plan. Yeah. Nobody plans. So I went, I probably had a GPA in the ones my freshman year. I graduated with like a three, four. So after. Okay. So, you know, so I turned things around. Knowing how, how, uh, how uh, averages work, that takes a hell of a, it's a hell of a lot harder to go from one point something to three point something <laughs> than it is to three point something to one point something. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so what, what so, happened? So I had my own dorm room, Martin Luther King day. I, I filled out this form in a class. They passed out these forms. And I just filled one out of what was for information for like a summer job. So I went, met with a guy the morning of it was Martin Luther King day. Cause the classes were off closed and we met in the university center um, for this program called Southwestern company. They're mm-hmm. in Nashville. It's the third oldest company here from 1868. So they're 150 years old now. And yeah, I met a guy named Chris white, fantastic mentor, really good, really good guy. I really was, I was tired and I wasn't like, why, why am I here? And I, he was like, do you want to do this? And I, yeah, I really wasn't into it. So two other people signed up to do it. Those guys ended up, they ended up doing really poorly. And then I went home and was basically, it was a sales company. So yeah, I was about to say, explain to people yeah. what Southwestern is. Like what, what, what do you got an internship at, at Southwestern over the summer? What do you do? So what happened was on, I was kind of adrift my first semester, of my sophomore year of college. And then I went and was introduced to this mentorship and sales program called Southwestern company, which there are countless businessmen. The guy named Chin Chu, for example, he owns, I think, the top two floors of the Trump Tower in New York City. Yeah. Um, a lot of business guy, businessmen. Um, Rick Perry. Rick I mean, Perry, yeah, there's all kinds of folks. There's tons of alumni. Jeff Sessions, yeah, Marshall Blackburn. You know, say what you will about them. They did it. Yeah. <laughs> um, basically, you basically sell yeah. books door to door for a summer. Educational books, whether yeah. it's... Um, it started as a Bible selling company, yeah. right? But like way back in the day. Yeah, it sold Bibles for Civil War soldiers trying to pay for college. They started selling Bibles and then transitioned into an educational program, educational books selling program. And then after a while, it's kind of transitioned to the form it is today where you get make good money, mm-hmm. but it's not like it was 40 years ago where you either had the choice to go back home and work on the farm or sell books and make a ton of money. And it was just a, basically a, a good business opportunity yeah. where you learn a lot. You happen to learn a lot. Well, and it was a way, I mean, it's like how back in the day people bought encyclopedias. The yeah. only way you could buy an encyclopedia is a salesman showed up at yeah. your door and you bought an encyclopedia. Yeah, you didn't go on Amazon or, or pull up your Kindle and get a, or have your iPad with a, a math app on it. Yeah, so so now so, it's more of a developmental program. Yeah. You can make, yeah, you do make money, but it's really, I mean, some of the, I never did it, but I've got several friends, as you know, who yeah. were part of the program and talk about learning some things. There's You've nothing. well at it, I think. You think so? Yeah. I mean, I, maybe I don't know. <laughs> You're outworking guy. Um, I, I'm sh- I, I don't like failing and stuff, so that that probably would have driven me if nothing else. Like, damn it, I'm going to go door to door until just hang out with the Jehovah's Witnesses or something. Just, yeah. just knock on everything. Mormons were the nicest people when you stopped by their house because <laughs> they know. Oh yeah, come on in. All beautiful people, yeah. friendly. So, so what what did you learn? So I ran in. Yeah. So. I went from hanging out with people that just really were adrift and, and really caught up in that, that drug party culture to meeting someone said, Hey, I can help you grow as a person. I can help you come up with goals. I can help you build your character into someone that will help you get to where you want to be. And that really attracted me. And I went home after going to a meeting and kind of saying, nah. And then I happened to have filled out a second form for a another class. And I got a call on like Super Bowl Sunday. Hey, do you want to come hear about this? I was like, Oh, yep. I'm ready to do that. <laughs> so when, uh, when did that, and it, it, 
in some ways it's almost cult-like because they have all these sayings like you get up in the morning and you're like, it's going to be a great day. You pop out of bed at 5.59 in the morning and you go take a cold shower. and you. Which I do that. The yeah. the left, uh, what do they call it? The left knob, turn the left knob. Yeah. Because if you do one thing, I learned that from a Southwestern guy. If you do, yeah. if you take a cold shower in the morning, it's the first thing you didn't want to do. Yeah. It makes all the other actions in your day easier. Yeah. And it, it just works. It's like drinking 15 cups of coffee at once. You are, you are awake. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very intense. Yeah. I cheat, I cheat a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you start like lukewarm and then work your way up. Yeah. You, you, you just crank it in. Yeah. You go from cold to hot. But I, I never took a hot shower for um, seven summers in the morning doing that. I, I sold books for seven years. I've recruited college students. So the first year was really about mentorship and learning how to sell and getting a lot of rejection and living in Kansas. Um, yeah. Because they plop you somewhere random in the country. Yeah. So you can go to these small towns and you'll knock on doors and say, hi, my name's Joel. And I know it's going to sound a little crazy, but me and some college students are here working in a summer program and looking for a place to stay. Do you know anybody that might have an extra room looking for some extra income? We're, we're gone from nine, seven in the morning till 9 PM. And, you know, we just need a place to keep our stuff and knock door to door. And we always found a place to live within the first two days in these small towns. So yeah, we did that. I lived with a guy named Wes Clanton, who was an awesome roommate. He works for Shelterbox now. He's like a captain on a boat, uh, he travels the world and oh. Yeah, he has a house here in Nashville. A great guy. I was really, really fortunate to have met him. So a lot of the people I ended up meeting at Southwestern were from Tennessee. They went to they were fortunate enough to go out in better schools than me, kind of had Open your eyes a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to change from hanging out with people that were adrift and you know, were a little more just they were. They weren't fortunate enough to have run into someone that would help you learn how to have goals and develop a, a positive attitude, a winning attitude. So did that for several years. Then uh, it, it was great. We would go to my first year. All I really wanted to do was win this trip. It was called the Sizzler trip. And you we went to Mexico. To, yeah, I went to Mexico. That's all I wanted was to get on that trip. Yeah. And so at the end of the summer, you got to do deliveries where you're driving around. You send all these cards to people and you got to drive around for like 14, 15 hours a day delivering books in the country. Yeah. The books that people bought. Yeah. On the front. And now you're bringing them to you. Yeah. That's before Amazon Prime. Yeah. <laughs> no, there was no drones back then to go and drop books off. You know, I had a guy come to my house and he had like an iPad with a map of the entire neighborhood and you could touch his house and put information on there. We were drawing hand drawn maps that we went and bought at the at the town hall. Wow. And then you'd mark every house and give uh, what they call pre approach. Yeah, because you got referrals. Like you would say, Hey, who do you know in the neighborhood? Blah, yeah. blah. So what did you learn about rejection? Because let's let's think about this. And and there's a reason I want to ask that question and tie everything into a nice bow, hopefully as as well as possible. But we talk, we've talked about drug addiction. We've talked about, you know, that's your business right now. And, and we've talked about people taking shortcuts and, and looking for that happiness. And, and then we've, we've transitioned into your personal development. And now we're at this, this intersection of you literally getting rejected over and over again, every single day while you're selling books door to door. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like most people are not open to you showing up at their door and being like, Hey, you want to buy some educational stuff? Yeah. I, on the other hand, am a sucker for salesmen. I will buy anything if you show up at my door. Yeah. I don't give a crap. I might never even use it, but just I appreciate the hustle. Yeah. Anyway. You're a kind and uh, open-minded gentleman. <laughs> I just appreciate the hustle. That's it. <laughs> you could be selling freaking rubber duckies. I'll be like, I need rubber duckies. Give them to me. I've got dull knives. They don't work, but you'll be helping me. To buy yeah. Them. Right. Um, uh, so, so, but when we talk about that rejection, what did you learn from that? Because a lot of people, it seems to me, just as an outsider looking in, a lot of rejection in life is what causes them to look for those shortcuts, 
to happiness, but not the type of rejection where you learn something from the rejection, but where they take the rejection so personally and internalize it. Yeah. Whether, whether it's, you know, I'm sure you know some guys who got rejected by some girl when they were like 13, they harbored that resentment forever, or whether yeah. it's somebody in the business world or, or whatever it may be. So, so talk, talk to us about that. You create a, um, what do they call it? An anchor memory. Like yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, yeah. Anchor yeah. it. So anytime you get rejected, it reminds you of that time the girl rejected you when you were 13. Whatever it is, a rejection is going to bring your fear out. Yeah. So you hear no, it's like, ah, I'm just some stupid kid that grew up in a small town or, ah, damn it, I'm a creeper knocking on their door at 9 a.m. or, yeah. ah, damn it, people just don't like me. So it brings out those insecurities. And, and so it's really about learning how to not take things personal. And to realize it's not rejection, personal rejection, it's refusal. And the rejection I got wasn't... Elaborate on that. What is the difference between rejection and refusal? Well, if someone's rejecting you, they're outright saying you're not good enough or I don't, you're a bad person or it's it's a personal... Character assault. Almost. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's affronting you personally. Whereas refusal is they're just not interested in your product. Yeah, they might like you as a person. They're yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got friends that do stuff and they're like, hey, do you want to buy my doTERRA oil. I'm like, eh, I really need essential oils, but thanks. Yeah. And I'm not saying I don't like you or you're a bad person or your oils are crap. Go throw them in the uh, Cumberland river. I'm just saying, I don't need it. Thank you for stopping by. I appreciate it. Yeah. And that was the hardest thing was most of the rejection wasn't go away or your books suck or we don't need any of that. It was things like, I remember this British guy and this was the best form of rejection. I wish I got this all the time. He said, I'm sorry, Joel. I'm just not interested in purchasing any educational books right now. That's, ooh, elaborate on that. Why was that the best? Because that was a logical explanation and he of why he didn't want to talk to me. He explained his position and I could agree with that. Okay, you don't want to buy personal educational books? Fine, I'm not going to waste your time. You're not going to waste mine. But what it was, the, the, worst, the worst ones were, I'm not interested because you didn't know what I was doing. So you're yeah. not even taking the time to know what I'm doing or I have to talk to my husband or can I wait? You know, can I think about it? Yeah. Those were hard because those weren't solid. It leaves too much open for the brain. You, yeah. you got way too many little little rabbit holes you can go. Whereas when somebody says, I'm sorry, Joel, I'm not interested in purchasing any educational books at this moment. That is such a clear yeah. cut answer to your brain where your brain just shuts down and says, okay, check mark, next. Yeah. It's like getting dumped. If someone, if a girl dumps you or a guy dumps you, whatever your thing is, and you say, well, I'm not ready to date right now. I've got a lot of things I'm working on in my life. You're a good person. I just, it's this cliche, but it's not you and anything that's going on with you. It's, I have to work on myself to be a healthier person. So I can't see you right now because I have to spend the time on myself. That's a great way to be broken up with. Yeah. A bad way to be broken up with is getting ghosted. Yeah. Getting ghosted or I'm not, we don't need to be together and, you know, have you have a good life. That leaves too much open for the mind to wander. Yeah. It's like sitting in a dark cell with no lights on and no noise or being in a, um, the water. Sensory deprivation. Yeah. It's like, Emotional sensory deprivation. You has too much in your mind to. Well, and uh, and you know we talked about there's different types of addictions, and I didn't intend for this to be the theme of the podcast, but I, it kind of turned out to be. Yeah. That just tagging along for the ride and the story of your life, and really what it sounds like to me is you getting in. So you were surrounded by people who had no drive, who were doing drugs, who and you can put it in the nicest way possible, but we're living the lives of losers. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Okay. And you took yourself out of that environment and put yourself in an environment where you can say whatever you want about direct sales, whether you like it or don't like it. The one thing that I appreciate, particularly about the culture at Southwestern, it is a culture of constant self-improvement. 
Yeah. You're surrounding yourself by people who constantly want to get better. Mm-hmm. And and you are the average of the five people you spend your time with. I mean, yeah. I, I can I don't I don't have any scientific da- data to back that up, but just use common sense. Look look at your friends. Things are just going to work out that way. It's not a coincidence that if you watch Jerry Seinfeld, the people he was hanging out with in the seventies were like Gary Shandling and Larry David, and you look at all the friends he had; they're all super successful. Yeah, they're, comedians. They're all like, you know, <laughs> they're all sharpening each other. Yeah. So when we talked about addiction, that it's not just alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be, but there's there's Facebook, there's video games. You know, we talked about you playing Red Dead Redemption and finishing it off and being like, crap, that was so much time wasted technically. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm glad I finished the game, but yeah. what did I actually do? Red Dead Redemption is awesome. It's, <laughs> it's such a detailed game that the weather changes. And when the weather changes, the horse's testicles get smaller or larger. That is, that is that, very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I've read about that. Um, skin animals. When you pick up like a dead animal after you skin it and throw it over your shoulder, it stains your shirt with red blood. Like, yeah. Just little Just little, little details. Like yeah. And so it's really scary because I'm a fan of the show Westworld. And it's Rockstar took five years to make this game. And the level of detail, it's like the first step into a virtual reality universe. Just the level of detail. It's, it's almost like the first inkling once we're able to immerse ourselves in a full vr experience it's gonna be insane but so wouldn't you say that look i like red dead yeah. i haven't played red dead 2 yet because i cannot commit the time to yeah. play red dead 2 yeah. okay i'm playing super smash brothers right now just to let it be known. priorities yeah <laughs> i'm a priority right but i'm just saying that level of detail it's great and it took a lot of work and effort yeah but why don't you go hunting? Yes, it's a it's pure escapism is what it is. Exactly. It's this shiny light. It's like one of those bug zappers. The insects love that blue light and they're flying right towards it. And like, oh, that's the prettiest light I've ever seen. And then zap, you're dead. Yeah. And so these games are designed for constant dopamine hits. They're designed for a pleasure that allows you to $65, you can go to a new world and make a brand new self. You're, you're Arthur Morgan for 50 hours or how yeah. long it takes to, to complete it. Instead of having to think about Joel DeSantis or whoever it may be, John clean, Doe. Yeah, cleaning your house or, or focusing on things like the 12 rules of life, you know, making sure your house is clean. and That escapism. So what are, what are folks, like when they're going into their treatment centers, when, yeah. you, when you help somebody go in, so they're obviously going for drug addiction and alcohol yeah. addiction, what is actually helping them get out of that? Because we're having, a, we're having people who are addicted to this escapism, whether it's video games or virtual reality or porn or whatever, pick yeah. something. What can people take from that? So one thing they can say is I need to surround myself by people who want to be better. Yeah. Because that helps. It could be a recovery community in, in terms of treatment, uh, 12 steps like AA or Nar- Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, going to a new environment and just breaking that pattern, that cycle of their lives and surrounding themselves with people that say, I was one way, but I'm no longer that person. I am. Well, and it's it's that's something I think about a lot, especially with this podcast, because part of the theme of this podcast is, you know, self-improvement. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what a lot of the episodes are, are about. And sometimes we just sit here and have a conversation about different things because I think you can learn from every single person. And, and, and that's why I like to just kind of hear your story and hear your background and try to pull things out as they go. But I work in the industry and I, I'll say it. I mean, I think there are a lot of improvements that can be done in the, the industry. Um, like what? Well, a lot of it, a lot of the current recovery models were formed in like 1930s by Bill Wilson for Alcoholics Anonymous. Almost 100 years ago. Yeah. Back when, and that that comes from a lot of the principles that come from the twelve steps come from a group. I can't remember their names from the like the late eighteen hundreds. 
Okay. So we're talking about 150 year old concept model that's being used now. Like when these concepts were developed, it was the same time they were bleeding people. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and they were cutting off someone's legs after they were just cutting off another person's leg and mixing blood and they weren't wearing gloves or any sanitary conditions. So there's a lot of good concepts. For example, the 12 steps is all about um, self-improvement, working on yourself, cleaning up your past, surrounding yourself with people that are positive influences. But there could be some bad sides or flip sides to it. Like um, for some people, this works, but other people, it doesn't. It's about accepting the label as an addict or an alcoholic. Mm. Like I am an alcoholic or I am an addict and I always will be. You know, I'm not, I've done drugs in 20 years, but I am an alcoholic or I'm an addict. And what that can do is it can anchor people into self-limiting beliefs. And even if they haven't been used, they haven't used for years, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, if they're constantly telling them themselves that once they mess up, it immediately takes them back. Them, yeah. It's almost, it's a, it's a self-talk that is meant to help, which by the way, if you don't know what self-talk is, it's basically a concept, a psychological concept of the world you create in your own head yeah. stems from the things you tell yourself. Yeah. So I tell myself every single morning, everybody loves me and, and everybody wants to be my friend. That's not the yeah. truth, but it makes my job a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm out there, you know, you looking for business. You believe everyone hates you or everyone loves you and you're probably going to benefit a lot better, a lot more by believing everybody likes you. Yeah. Or if you tell yourself something, you know, hey, I, I, I bring good things into the world and I strive to make my community better every single day. And you yeah. told yourself that every single day. Does that mean every single action you make is going to be something that betters the community? No. But that does mean that it's constantly at the forefront of your thinking. Yeah. You start to see evidence of whatever you're thinking about. If you think about, you know, see the color gray, the room is gray in here. You're going to see gray. Or like when you want to buy a car. Yeah. When you go buy like a, a Volkswagen, you start seeing Volkswagens everywhere. Yep. It's not like everyone else went and bought one at the same time. It's just, you're, we have so much, so many, so much stimuli in our brains and so much input that we just can't focus take, on everything. Take it all. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so with, um, as, with addiction, there's a, most people, if you went up to them and said, here's a bag of heroin, would you like it? They're like, no, I don't do heroin. That's yeah. That would be a level four self-talk, which is I just don't do that. Yeah, that's not me. I don't do that. So a lot of it is teaching people that they have a disease, which it doesn't matter what the label is, whether it's a disease, mental health problem, a mental disorder, a psychological disorder. There's a lot of science backing the way our brains react to, to drugs. And so we're learning more about how to treat addiction and a lot of times it once you take the drugs away then you're confronted with all the problems that you are escaping for those drugs and until you really work on the trauma and the shame that comes with that that feeling of guilt then it's tough for those people to quit doing drugs and so if they go back into a community and environment that shames them and says you're a bad person for doing drugs then it makes it much more difficult for them to quit and uh so that's that's it's kind of a mental prison Hmm. I just am this person. I like that mental prison. Yeah. I got that from Scott Adams from the Dilbert writer. He talks about that. Interesting. Yeah. So if you, you know, we're running up on time here, but okay, let's go back to 18 year old Joel. So that's 15 years ago. Yes. So if you could go back, knowing all that you know now, knowing all that you know about yourself and you went back to 18 year old Joel, what would you, what would you go say? Don't take shortcuts. Hmm. Take the hard route and face your pain because when you're 33, today is just going to feel the same as it did when you were 18. Like today, always feel you always feel just as young as you did when you were 18. 
you know, it's, it's not like you're going to wake up one day and say, wow, I'm 33. I'm a totally different person. What you will do is look back and say, okay, I went this way or I went that way. Hmm. You know, I could have gone one way where I was so depressed. I died. And my family was distraught and I wasn't alive or I could have gone another way where I invested in Google and got into some random startup. Become a billionaire. And, yeah. Become a billionaire. You know, I think in the scheme of things, both of us have turned out pretty darn well. I'm in a pretty good relationship with my family now. My dating life's good. Yeah. I own a home in Nashville. It's a great city to be in. We're very fortunate. You look at the scheme of things in the world. I mean, yeah. we're, we're all very lucky. Um, our family's moved to great countries from Europe. <laughs> uh, you know, that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if I had to look back other than, uh, yeah, I'd say surround yourself with, don't be afraid to be rejected. I'd say that's the biggest thing I would tell myself. Don't be afraid. I would probably tell myself yourself. that as well. Yeah. I think that I think that's one of the most key. I like what you said about don't take shortcuts. Yeah. I think that's that's huge, but don't be afraid to be rejected. Rejection is good. Yeah. Because it gives you clarity. Yeah. Like if we're constantly accepted 24/7, and I tell folks when people really dig deeper into what I do for a living like gathering clients and things like that. It's like I'm constantly getting rejected every single day. Yeah. Folks are and you as well. You you're trying to help somebody get them in the treatment and they, you know, don't want to do it. Where no. they ghost you or they dis, you know, there's all kinds of different You're killing issues. yourself and your wife hates you, but you want to continue doing this because yeah, an addicted mind that got someone to where they are, isn't going to get them out of it. Yeah. You know, like your, your broken car isn't going to fix itself. You have to call a mechanic and then fix it. Same, you need something external to come in there, grab you and pull you out of that. Pull you out. And so that's why rejection is good because it leaves a lot of, if you get rejected, at least there's an answer. It doesn't leave all these open questions. Like what if, or why? And you can learn from rejection. You know, what did, could I have been nicer to that person? Could I have said something differently? Could I have had a better attitude? So, Well, and if we can – rejection, the other thing that rejection forces you to do is it forces you to reevaluate what went well and what went badly. Yeah. And, and it, it constantly puts you in a state of improvement from that. So Just a short snippet. I think that's a big struggle with uh, – we're constantly trying to be accepted on social media. And social media is all about finding acceptance. Yep. But there's no rejection, so there's no development. Yeah. And that's a whole nother episode. Yeah. That's a whole nother. We can, we can have a round table on that. That <laughs> actually would be kind of cool. Uh, well, Joel, I appreciate you coming on. I'll put all your. Glad you had me. Put your social media in case anybody wants to slide in your DMs or something like that. <laughs> and you, you might be able to help somebody or whatever it may be. But uh, again, everybody out there listening, millennialmanhoodcip at gmail.com. If you've got any uh, compliments or constructive criticism, the keyword is constructive criticism. If you if you don't like something, offer a solution. Don't just complain. And uh, outside of that, I hope you guys enjoy, and we'll talk again soon.